Okay, now just for the people online, if there's any uh, interruptions with the streaming or anything, apparently the computer is running slow, so uh, apologize in advance if anything happens, and if not, uh, maybe Sergio will do some work on it tomorrow, because he says there's something, something running slow in it. And um, let's see here, uh, we'll go ahead and read this first. Today is March 1st. Okay, March 1st, this is... Uh, their loyalty was mutual. On March 1st, 1973, Billy Graham was at a White House state dinner to honor Prime Minister Golda Meir of Israel. A family friend tells the story. Just before 8 p.m. dinner, the Grahams mingled with the other guests in the East Room. 8 p.m. is way too late for dinner. I'm, I'm already in bed by then. When Billy greeted the Prime Minister in the receiving line, she reached up and kissed him. At dinner, Meyer sat between Nixon and Billy at table 12. Ruth sat at table 9, where she watched the proceedings with a bit of bemusement. A Jewish woman sitting at Ruth's table stared suspiciously at Billy and Golda Meyer, not realizing that the evangelist's wife was sitting inches away from her. What is Billy Graham doing sitting next to Madame Golda? The woman asked of no one in particular. Do you suppose that he is proselytizing her? I would put my money on Madame Goldemeyer, Ruth replied dryly, but never fear. When we get home tonight, I'll straighten him out. Billy Graham and President Richard Nixon's friendship began after Nixon's mother told her son of the powerful young evangelist she had just heard preach. Nixon was in law school at the time, and the two did not meet until 1950 when Graham was in Washington, D.C. and was introduced to Nixon, a freshman congressman from California. They had become good friends by the time John F. Kennedy defeated Nixon in his first bid for the White House. Nixon often sought out Graham for counsel and prayer. Later, when Nixon did become president, uh, Graham preached at some White House worship services. But in January 1973, at Nixon's second inauguration, Graham told his wife Ruth, the president does not look like himself. I've never seen him look or act that way. He later wrote, Nixon was terribly preoccupied and hardly seemed to know we were present. I could tell by his eyes that he was under some severe strain. At that time, I had no idea what it was about, what was to come about, nor did any of his other friends. Shortly after the dinner, Prime Minister Meir, the Watergate scandal broke. Graham found the news so discouraging that it almost made me physically sick. Graham was one of the few who distinguished between the sinner, his friend Nixon, and the sin of the Watergate cover-up. But the distinction was lost on many who condemned Graham for refusing to condemn Nixon. Graham remained loyal, but Nixon wouldn't return his phone calls. When Nixon died in April 1994, his family asked Graham to preach at his funeral. Graham was honored and recalled another funeral that gave him hope that he would see his friend again in heaven. Before his mother's funeral service, he talked with me for a few minutes about her faith. Dick, do you have that same kind of faith, I asked. I believe I do, he said quietly. That was his Quaker way to keep piety private. That's the only way you can be guided in life, and it's the only way you can get to heaven, I said, and then I prayed for him. He later told me that was one of the great moments of his life, and I believe he meant it. And the months of no communication in the wake of Watergate? It turned out that the silence was motivated by love for a friend. After, long, after months of long right waiting, after months of long waiting, Graham learned Nixon had told his aides, don't let Billy Graham near me. I don't want him tarred with Watergate. How do you think Graham felt when Nixon wouldn't talk to him after the scandal broke? 
Could you separate the sinner from the sin and remain faithful to a friend in a situation like that? It turned out that they were both faithful to each other in their own way. Proverbs 27, 6 says, Wounds from a friend are better than many kisses from an enemy. Wow. Wow. A little bit of nobility coming from Nixon. That was something interesting. Um, got a guy named uh, Don. He uh, uh, lives in uh, South America. Where is he? Colombia? I'm sorry, Don. Anyway, um, he uh, asked me for special prayers for health and finances yesterday. And uh, I don't want to give away the details, but he said he, he gave them to me. And so it's probably okay. But anyway, we'll just remember Don and health and finances. And uh, let's go to the Lord in prayer for some guidance. Lord, we thank you for the chance to come here and to uh, read your word, to study your word, to share in a little bit of fellowship with others. And uh, we lift up to you the people that are having troubles right now, including Don, our good friend who's got a difficulty down there right now, and uh, with his health and his finances for him and his family. And uh, we have lots of other people that are struggling with their own personal times of difficulty, and we would pray for them. And Lord, we thank you for the lessons that we get, even from reading about the life of Billy Graham and <laughs> President Nixon, how we can conduct ourselves to keep people from being embarrassed by our own actions or being a friend when they need to be responded to. I mean, we just have to evaluate these things and look at what the best path is and then leave it in your hands that uh, we're doing what is proper. And Lord, uh, we thank you again. We're in the book of Romans and we're starting a new chapter and we would pray that we would handle it properly and uh, that you would be honored and glorified through how it is presented. And if it's wrong, if my analysis, which I'm presenting is wrong, then I would pray that these that are listening in class or online would check and make sure that uh, they are not uh, following a wrong interpretation of what is in your word. So we thank you that we can come together and do these things, and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Yes. Oh, boy. Um, <laughs> the what? New chapter. <laughs> New chapter. Yes, we're in Romans 10.1, and uh, Hedico probably won't be here tonight, but it is her birthday today. Actually, it was last night at 12 o'clock because she's 29 February birthday, but we didn't have one this year. But uh, she probably will not be here today. She had an accident last night, and uh, the front of her car is, it's, I don't think she's going to want to drive over here with that. The whole front came off. And uh, so, anyway, I she would, okay? uh, oh, she's fine, yeah. But I am probably going to maybe close this 10 minutes early today so I can just get out of here and go see her because I haven't seen her all day. And, uh, you know, got to at least, there you go. Okay, we have um, Romans 10, verse 1 is where we're at. Brothers, my heart desire and prayer to God for, test for the Israelites is that they may be saved. Okay, if anybody remembers Zola Levitt, he was a... Uh, uh, a guy I went to Israel with, and he, uh, very nice guy, and he always started his uh, his uh, show, the Zola Levitt Presents, he started with that right there, brethren, my heart's desire and prayer for to God for Israel's that it may be saved. He always started his show with that, and then the last thing he would say, does anybody remember the last thing he'd say? Sha'alu Shalom Yerushalayim, pray for the peace of Israel. Did you say that? Okay, so you got it, he got it. okay, we had to, I, I heard you say something, and I had already started, so I didn't mean to cut you off, but yeah, there you go. Gone? He was he died. Did he go? Yeah, he, he, yeah, he had a bad heart, and uh, eventually, uh, and he wasn't that old, but, you know, very nice guy, and uh, uh, he was very sound in his theology. You know, you get a lot of converts from Judaism, and they still want to stick to the things that uh, are required under the law, and he very 
clearly understood the distinction. There was no, you know, well, you know, I don't eat pork, even though it's okay under the law. There was never any of that. You know, he would, you know, I, I just think it, there, I heard one Jew one time say, well, I don't eat pork, even though I've come to Christ because they were God's garbage cans. Well, everything is God's garbage can. Everything, everybody eats, and then, you know, that's just what happens. But anyway, he was very good about making a complete distinction between the law and grace, and he understood dispensationalism very well. He's very well grounded in his theology. But anyway, here we go. That verse right there, brethren, my heart's desire. Um, the NU text for this verse, there are differences in the uh, texts, as we've talked about a million times. You've got the Byzantine text, and then you've got the Alexandrian text. And you'll find little differences between them. And if you're a King James-only person, if you read anything with the NU text, then you're going to heck and um, all that. But um, we've talked about textual differences a million times. I won't do it today. But how can you know if this is God's inspired word and which one is correct and which one isn't? There is a way of determining this, okay? It's a very long process. It's called critical scholarship. And uh, these people spend their lives looking at various texts. We've got, at the time I was in college, there were 5,686 Greek texts, okay, of the New Testament. And then you have um, 14,000 lectionaries, which are commentaries the early church fathers would do commentary verse by verse, and you could completely construct the entire New Testament, the entire New Testament based on those lectionaries with the exception of 11 verses. So there's no doubt we have a sure word. We've got a commentaries on this word. We've got, it goes back to the very beginning. You'll get some differences in texts, and we can come to an understanding of which is correct and why simply by going through critical scholarship. So I'm not going to get into that, but I'll say that the Alexandrian text, the NU text for this verse, upon which many translations are based, states, brethren, my heart's desire and my prayer to God for them is for their salvation. Okay, that would be the NASB version. The intent is the same either way. Hello, Nicole. It is Israel who is being spoken of in verses 9, 27 through 33. So whether he specifically says Israel in verse 10 or if he doesn't, we know who he's talking about based on what he was saying in chapter 9. Okay, so um, people will make a big deal out of that. No context is How lost. How could they, though? Zero. Because it was, it was written, obviously, before chapters and verses. That's right. And it was like, okay, if I'm writing a letter... It's one streaming thought. Charlie's a great guy, then I start a new paragraph. Tomorrow I'm going to go with him. It's like, you know... It's right there. That's what you absolutely. Charlie, right? And there was, uh, seeing as how you brought that up, he said that uh, there was no chapter or paragraph divisions when Paul wrote that. And that's absolutely true. There wasn't any for almost all of the uh, Christian uh, history from the time of Christ. Does anybody remember when chapter divisions came in? I've said it before. It was about the year 1034. Cardinal Hugo Santo de Caro is the guy that broke them down into chapter divisions that we use today. There was another person that broke them into chapters at a different point in time, and we don't use his, okay? But the ones we use are by this guy, and then it was, anybody remember the first Bible that had the the verse divisions? Okay, it was the Geneva Bible, 1560. It was Robert Stephanos that year who broke it down into verse divisions, okay? And from there, it was put into the Geneva Bible. It was the first Bible to have chapter and verse divisions. Okay. Before that, it was just a letter. It was just, yeah, it was just a long letter. And so context was always maintained in that sense. And then the verse divisions, 
this is one thing, seeing as how you brought it up and I'm, I'm talking about it, is that if you take these verse divisions as they are, and if you take the chapter divisions as they are, there are patterns which are astonishing that go through the Bible based on the chapter and verse divisions. I mean, astonishing, okay? So I'll just really quickly say this just so you can get what I'm saying. Yeah, the Old Testament was decided by the Council of Yamina, and uh, it was way back, early, early, like A.D., okay? They determined, the Jews determined what the Old Testament canon was, okay? Their Old Testament, which is their Bible, our Old Testament, their Bible, uh, is in a different order than the Christian Bible, okay? It goes it, from Genesis to, to Chronicles, okay? We go from Genesis to Malachi. So it's in a different order, but it's the same books. They don't divide the books of Kings. They don't divide the books of Samuel. They're one book instead of two. Okay, we have divisions in them. They're exactly the same books, and then they're in another order. And as far as I know, nobody knows why they chose to put them in the order they did in the Old Testament. But the Christians rearrange the Old Testament. And then from there, you have the New Testament. So from the time of the writing of Moses until the time of John finishing the book of Revelation is about 1,600 years. And then you have uh, the Old Testament was decided upon by the Jews, but it's not the same structure as the Christian Bible. And then you have the Christian Bible, and those books were not considered canon, all of them, until about 350 A.D., so you have 27 books of the New Testament, which were considered authoritative by the people in the church, but they were not compi compiled into what we call the canon or the, the, uh, the New Testament. Okay, That wasn't done until about 350 AD. So you have the Old Testament and all of its history, and you've got the New Testament and these different workings that are going on. And then you have a thousand years later, you have, or actually 700 years later from the Council of Nicaea, you have the um, uh, chapter divisions. And then after that, about 500 or so years later, you have the verse divisions. All of this time between these things, and yet, if you take verses and you look at them from the Old Testament in patterns that run through there, they are perfect. In other words, what I'm telling you is that the verse divisions themselves are divinely inspired. I'm going to give you one example. I could give you a thousand of them. I'm going to take one just because it comes to mind. Um, does anybody know what the 40th book of the Bible is? Okay, the 40th book of the Bible is the book of Matthew. Okay, so somebody go to Matthew chapter 3. Okay, now Isaiah makes, they call Isaiah a little Bible because it's 66 books. And how many books are in, or chapters, how many books are in the Bible? 66. So if you have Isaiah with 66 chapters, and then you have the Bible with 66 books, you might have patterns running through them. And one of them is Isaiah chapter 40. If you go to Isaiah chapter 40, and you read the third verse, and then you have Matthew, who's in Matthew? Is anybody in Matthew chapter 3? Okay, Matthew chapter 3, read the third verse. Third verse is, For this is he who was spoken of by the prophets, Isaiah, saying, The voice of the one of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Okay, in Isaiah 43, the 40th and the 40th and the third and the third, Isaiah 43 says, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord. Now you could say that's coincidence. You could say, oh, that just happened. I could show you dozens, if not hundreds of these. Dozens, if not hundreds of them. And I found many, many of them. I've got them on my website that you can go refer to. The 
uh, book of Matthew is 28 chapters long. If you go to the first 28 books of the Old Testament, there are patterns that run through there. Joseph had a dream in the first book of Genesis. Joseph has a dream in the first chapter of Matthew, and it goes that way all the way through. You'll see these beautiful patterns. Some of them are numerical based on verses. Some of them are uh, ideas, concepts. Some of them are actual scripture quotations, and they match perfectly. Um, what happened when they threw Daniel into the lion's den? What did the king do? The king, but what did he do before he went to bed? He sealed the tomb, right? Yeah, what happened right. in the 27th, which is the 27th book of the Bible, what happened in the 27th book of, or chapter of uh, Matthew? The tomb was sealed. So you have the same pattern running through there. This goes beautifully all the way through the Bible. You'll see it in the book of John, matching Revelation, based on the Hebrew alphabet, which is the alphabet. Patterns in the Bible are everywhere. So we don't need to wonder if we have a sure word or not. As a matter of fact, I'm going to bring that up as an introduction to a sermon here shortly, um, that we have a sure word, 100%. And if you just look at the patterns which run through there, there's a point where you can no longer say, that is by chance. It is impossible. There, you could say it with you know Isaiah 43 and Matthew 43, verse 3. You could say, well, that's just chance. Right. You get to a point where it is not. And there are so many, and they're, they're so precise that it is simply astonishing. So um, we'll go on with the commentary now. You got me off on a little tangent, and I apologize about that, but you know, you get it in your head and you want to get it out. So um, he begins verse 2 with the word, oh, I'm still in verse 1. The, uh, the intent is the same. He says Israel in this text. He says um, for them in this text, the intent is the same. It is Israel who is being spoken of in verse 9, 27 through 33. Whether they were named by Paul specifically or not, this verse either implicitly or explicitly is speaking of Israel and only of the church, right? No, he's speaking of Israel. We need to get that straight. I've been saying this again and again and again as we go through here. When Paul speaks of Israel, he is always referring to the church, right? No. no, never. He's never referring to the church. He is always speaking of the group of people known as Israel. He never says that the church has now replaced Israel. Okay, we went through that very carefully in chapter 9. We're going to see it here continuing in chapter 10. Okay, it, uh, he is speaking of Israel and only of Israel. It's important to understand this because time and again, Paul will speak of Israel, the nation, and the people as a united group of people who are his brethren. Okay, now he may call a person in the church his brother as well, but that is not what he is speaking of when he's speaking of his brethren, meaning his tribe. Okay, it's, uh, he's speaking of them as his brethren, the Jews. He never speaks of the church as Israel. Never. Nor does he speak of Israel transitioning into the church. He never makes that, you know, logical conclusion either. That has to be read into the Bible. Anybody that teaches you that the church has replaced Israel, I would ask them, how can you justify that? How can you just, and if they start citing things, then say, well, who is Paul speaking about? He's speaking about Israel. He's speaking about the people of Israel. And I don't know how they can make this mistake nowadays, and I've showed you how they can make it in the past and how people could have understand that the church has replaced Israel. But if you just look at it from the text itself, it's not possible. It's simply not. You have to come with to the text with the idea that that is what it is saying, is that we are now fulfilling this. Uh, but that has to be read right into it. Okay, so... Um, 
accepting this, accepting that he is speaking of Israel as Israel and not the church, in verse 10-1, it can only mean one thing. Paul's heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel, meaning the Jewish people, is that they may be saved. He would never say that about the church, would he? My heart, brethren, my heart's desire for Israel is that they be saved, and you are Israel, well, you're already saved. He's speaking to saved people in the church. So we cannot make the category jump from Israel to the church. He is obviously making a distinction in this verse. The church is a group of saved people. Israel is not. As a majority, they had rejected Christ. There's a remnant of them at the time, and there was always a remnant all the way through church history. But, that, oh, you know what? There was talking about a remnant of uh, Israel or always being Jews that are saved. There's a lady that um, uh, my friend in uh, Venus, she's over in uh, Australia, tagged me on somebody that was here in Sarasota doing an art show. And I said, yeah, that's a Jewish lady that lives here in Sarasota. And about five minutes later, this lady posts on her mind. She says, I'm a Jewish believer here in Sarasota. And she's been a believer for, I think she said, 47 years. Yeah, so. Later. Was that? Did you ever catch up with it? No, I went over and it was closed. And so I looked through the window at all for beautiful art. But uh, as I was looking through our artwork, I should have known because one of them was a, a beautiful picture and it had a red apple in there. Okay. But the title was, Have You Not Read? And that's what Jesus always said, you know, have you not read? So I should have clued into it at the time, but beautiful artwork. And uh, anyway, so uh, the, the Jews are always the Jews. There's no a Jew becoming a Gentile when they come to Christ. They're still Jewish people, okay? Gentiles never become Jews. That's, it, but people will say that. R.C. Sproul said that in one of his commentaries. You want to know where the Jews are? He said, here we are. Hey, Listen, the ignorance that people will apply to that is the fact that, okay, the Jews are God's chosen people. Right. Of course, I want to be. I want to be God's, God's chosen, chosen people. people. It's like, okay, you're not. You're his sons that, that's, we're sons through adoption but we are not jews we don't become jews when we come to christ we remain gentiles when people say and this is a verse that i will get into in case somebody preempt the email that's bound to come in <laughs> is there is now no distinct jew gentile male female there is now do, no distinction all are one in christ jesus right what's well, a he's saying that there's no jew and gentile anymore no by saying jew and gentile in one sentence He's making a distinction. Just like when he says male and female. Let me ask you, are there any females in this room right now? Ladies, keep your hands down, <laughs> right? Of course there are. When he says there's no distinction, and people use that verse saying we are now the church, and I saying, well, then there's no gender either. Well, there's right? no distinction anymore. Well, yeah, there's no distinction in the LGBT community. Absolutely. But you see what I'm saying? It, it, it is a category mistake to say when you cite that verse and say there is now uh, no Jew, no Gentile, no male, no female, all are one in Christ Jesus. It means all are one in Christ equal. Jesus. They're all, they're, they're all equal. There is no difference in Christ, but there is a distinction in who you are. By saying Jew and Gentile, he's making a distinction. By saying male and female, he's making a distinction. Okay, we do not stop being males when we come to Christ. We do not stop being Jews when we come to Christ. So that type of a question, I just saved myself five emails because if I didn't say that, that would be the first thing I'd get in the morning. Okay, go back and read those verses that you want to ask me about. Read them in the context they're written, and it will always come out that there is a difference. There is no distinction because we are one in Christ. It's the spiritual connection to Christ. We are all one. Okay, so going on. Um, 
let's see here. His heart is speaking of the Jewish people. Salvation had come to the Gentiles. Paul is the apostle to who? The Gentiles. It says it three times, and he says that Peter is the apostle to the Jesus. circumcision, right? He says that twice, okay? So salvation, and in, implying it, it probably is 50 times about Paul, but explicitly, I think he says it three times. Salvation had come to the Gentiles, and those few Jews, and I'm not talking about at the time, there were probably 20 or 30,000 Jews that were saved, maybe more, okay? But compared to the nation as a whole, they were only a few Jews. Oh, I gotta stop. I don't wanna miss this before. This will only take one second. We have a new Missy Charlie design. So if anybody wants a new shirt to order, go oh, onto her website, G-O-D. Yeah. It's the God man on the cross. She made a perfect distinction there of showing the deity of Christ as he was hanging on the cross. So wonderful shirt. Thank you, Missy Charlie. And uh, uh, she actually said, I'm gonna send you one. I said, no, you're not. You're a business lady, I'm ordering it. And I ordered it before she could send it. I went right there and ordered it. So, uh, and I saw her just putting it on her wall and I said, isn't that beautiful? And I made a comment and she says, well, I'll send you one. No, 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 don't do that. You need to, you need to make your money and not be giving stuff away. It's like when you go to a restaurant of a friend, pay your bill. Even if they say, no, you're a friend. Business is always business. If you want to give them a present, if you want, that's fine. Don't take things for free, okay? People that are in business need to stay in business, okay? That's just my my thing with that. I, you know, because you have friends that you go and visit all the time. They need to stay in business. Okay, we'll go on. I didn't mean to interrupt there, but salvation had come to the Gentiles. There's a few Jews who had received their Messiah, the remnant of verse 927, which said, um, Isaiah also cries out concerning Israel, though the number of children of Israel be as the sand of the sea, the remnant will be saved. He's speaking about Israel there. He's speaking about Israel in chapter 10, verse 1. He cannot be speaking about the church. And if that is the case, then the church did not replace Israel. Okay, 927. Those Jews who had called on Jesus were not the impetus for a great movement of their people and a national salvation but a small group from the nation. In large part, Israel had rejected their king. If they had not, and God knew that they would, but if they had not, the kingdom would have been ushered in right then. Christ would have reigned from Jerusalem and the world would have been under the authority of Israel. That's what would have happened, okay? That's what we know would have happened because it says the Messianic promises. He's going to rule from Zion and the law will go forth from Jerusalem and you know all of these things that it says in the Old Testament but it didn't happen. Which is okay. what they wanted. Which is what they wanted. They were looking for the, the ruler first. They weren't looking for the atonement. When the atonement came and he died, they thought, well, this can't be the Messiah that we're looking for. And to this day, they are still looking for the wrong guy. As a matter of fact, I was watching Les Feld about you know eight years ago, and he has a Jewish friend, and they were talking, and the guy, um, I, I don't remember if it was a commentary or if they were just talking and, and discussing the matter, but one way or another, he conveyed who the Messiah was that they were waiting for. And he says, your view of the Messiah is our view of the Antichrist, because we know that the Antichrist is the one that is going to do these things. And that's what they're looking for. They're looking for somebody that's going to give them peace, that's going to do this and it's going to do that. He went down the list and he says, that's exactly what the Bible says about the Antichrist. The Messiah has come. He has died for his people, and someday he will rule, but he's not doing it the way that you people think. And he was very clear with this guy. You were looking for the wrong guy. Wait you were going to go verse. down a bad path. What? Wait till the next verse. Yeah, uh, yeah wait till the next verse, absolutely. So, uh, and we have time still. So, um, a small group in a large part, 
Paul's desire, his heart's desire, reflects the seat of will of his mind and his hopes. The heart, my heart's desire. The word is cardios. We have a doctor in here. What is cardios? speak to you. That's right. The cardiac, you know, you're going into cardiac arrest. Well, this is where it comes from, the Greek word cardios, from which we derive our word cardio or heart. Exactly. Though they had beaten him, mocked him, chased after him, and intended to kill him, the affection of his heart, his cardios, was for his brethren in the flesh. Yes, he was the apostle to the Gentiles. Yes, he loved Timothy as a son in the faith, but his heart's desire was for his own people to be saved. He had no room in himself to desire anything but their calling on Jesus and being saved. He wanted a great national revival. It never came about by him. It didn't come about by any other evangelist. It didn't come about by Billy Graham. It will come about someday when they realize they've made the mistake, called on the wrong guy, and eventually they will call out to him in their desperate time of need, and it will happen that he will return and save them but it ain't gonna happen until that time. Individual Jews will be saved. Praise the Lord for that every time it happens. The nation as a whole is going to suffer immensely in the coming years, That's immensely. Paul's first stop in every city he went to. Always, he always went to the Jews first, always. He would go in, he'd reason in the synagogue, they'd chase him out after a couple of weeks because they were jealous of all the Gentiles that came to hear the message. And then he'd go next door to the, you know, the, the what do you call it, the gymnasium or something, and he'd talked to the Gentiles and any Jews that came along that wanted to hear, he spoke freely, but you're right, he always went to the to the uh, Jews first, okay? So um, let's see here, um, the affection of his heart was for his brethren in the flesh. The salvation he is speaking of is individual salvation, but that which would, um, I'm sorry, is that of individual salvation, but that which would spread to the individuals throughout the nation. He wanted individuals to be saved and then for them to collectively call on their Messiah. Someday, oh, I already said this, someday this will occur, as is promised in both the Old Testament and in the New. Chapter 11 is very clear that this is going to happen. Jesus' words are very clear that this is going to happen. But before this occurs, the tribulation period will come and Israel will be refined as a people. When they are so broken that there is no hope left, Christ Jesus will return and he will rescue them. Now we know. Daniel 9, 24 through 27 gives us the prophetic outline of history from Daniel's time all the way until the end times. There are seven more years that are left. We had 490 years or 70 weeks of seven years that were given to Israel. And he gives you the, the details. There will be 62 weeks and um, uh, anyway, uh, what is it? Uh, I, I, I don't want to get it wrong. 62 is 8. Anyway, um, they add up to uh, 483 years. Okay, it's in Daniel 9, go read it. 483 years, and they stop at the crucifixion of Christ. There are seven more years left for Israel. That is what was promised to them as a people. They are going to have the law. They're going to be living under the law, and that, let's go there, just real quickly, because we're in Daniel, I, I'm sorry, chapter 10 of Romans, and to understand what is going on, we might as well go to Daniel 9. It says here, verse 24, 70 weeks are determined for your people and for your holy city. Who is Daniel? Well, is he a Gentile? No. no. Okay, your people then is the Jews. And your holy city is Mecca? No, it's, that's right. It's Jerusalem, okay? So this is the Lord speaking to Daniel, who's a Jew, about 
Jerusalem. <laughs> Seventy weeks, 490 years are determined for your people and for your holy city to finish the transgression. This is what the final seven years are for because they did not accomplish this in the first 483. They did not. And so there's seven years left that they have the opportunity to get this done. Three good things, three bad things. For your people and your holy city, Jerusalem, I inserted Jerusalem, to finish the transgression, to make an end of sins, to make reconciliation for iniquity. All three bad things, things that they need to dispose of in their life, which Christ did for them, which they did not receive. Christ is the one that will take care of those when they call on him. He will finish the transgression, he will make an end of sins, and he will make reconciliation for iniquity. And the three good things? to bring in everlasting righteousness. We're calling on Christ and we will be a righteous people forever to seal up vision and prophecy. No more vision, no more prophecy. At this time, they're looking for vision. They're looking for prophecy. It even says in Acts chapter two, which is speaking to the Jews, Peter speaking to the Jews, he quotes Joel. You know, your men will dream dreams and your old men, you know, the, what, we went through that a couple of years ago in the book of Acts, but he's speaking to them about what will happen and that will occur to them in the end times. It's not speaking to the Gentiles during this dispensation. It's speaking to the Jews. You never, they didn't even know until Acts chapter 10 that the Gentiles were included in this. It was solely a Jewish thing in Peter's mind. Okay, so um, to seal up vision and prophecy and to anoint the most holy. What is that speaking of? To accept Christ and to say, we have anointed you as our king. That is what they have 490 years to do. Know it therefore and understand, verse 25, that from the going forth of the command to rebuild Jerusalem. Now I have this, if you go to um, uh, prophecy update number 88, you can watch it. I did it on the board here and I've got it all laid out. But um, uh, I, So I'm not going to go through it in detail, but go back and watch that. Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem, the command until Messiah the Prince and you have to know which command because uh, what was his name King Cyrus gave them authority to go back to the land and then it was stopped and then in Nehemiah's time Artaxerxes King Artaxerxes in 445 BC allowed it once again that is the time that it, it, the prophetic clock starts at that time from the command okay to restore and build Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince so from the day of that command until Messiah the Prince there shall be seven weeks and 62 weeks okay seven and 62 is 69 that's your 483 years 483 years or I can't write with my left hand 483 years that's your 483 years from the time of the decree of Artaxerxes, which is recorded in Nehemiah until Messiah the Prince um, where is that um, from uh, until Messiah the Prince until Christ there shall be seven weeks and 62 weeks which is uh, 173,880 days I think anyway you can get right down to the number of days okay um, there shall be the street shall be built again and the wall even in troublesome times what book of the Bible fits that Nehemiah the troublesome time. Remember, they're, they're building the wall, and at the same time, they're carrying a sword. They have a guy out there to alarm any intruders coming. It, it describes what is going on, not in the book of Ezra, but in the book of Nehemiah, okay? Even in troublesome times. And after the 62 weeks, you have seven and 62. After the 62 weeks, which means the total of 69 weeks, or 483 years, Messiah shall be cut off. He's gonna be crucified. But it says, but not for himself. He's going to die for the sins of the people. He shall be cut. It's specific right there. Messiah is going to be cut off. That's not what the Jews are looking for. They haven't gone to Daniel and looked at it in understanding what was intended. Messiah shall be cut off. 
but not for himself. He's going to die, but for the sins of the people and the people of the prince who is to come. This is an important phrase, the people of the prince who is to come. Who is the prince, I'm sorry, who are the people that destroyed Jerusalem? The Romans, okay? So the people of the prince to come, the Romans, but not the prince. The prince is somebody coming later. The people of the prince to come. The wording is very precise so that we don't make the error that it's Titus of AD 70, okay? Titus did destroy, he wasn't a prince, he was a general, okay? Anyway, and you could argue that the same word could be used, but regardless, it's not speaking of Titus, okay? It's the people of the prince to come uh, shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. That was the Romans, that was AD 70. The end of it shall be a flood, and till the end of the war, desolations are determined. And then you come to verse 27, and I've said this at least a million times in my life, the most important pronoun in the entire Bible for understanding end times prophecy is the first pronoun you find in verse 27. Then he, who is he? If you believe that it's Titus, okay, he was the Antichrist or whoever, uh, they'll say it was Nero, whatever, then you're a prayed risk and you believe that all prophecy is done and the Jews are out and the church has replaced Israel. Okay, or you could say then he is speaking of, oh, I'm sorry, the Praetorist would say that he is Christ. Okay, the dispensationalists would say that it is Antichrist. And it can't be both, that's for certain. Okay, so then he shall confirm a covenant with many for one week, meaning one period of seven years. Okay, they will say that Christ confirmed a covenant for seven years. Did Christ confirm a covenant for seven years? One, he didn't confirm a covenant. He died in fulfillment of one covenant, and he initiated a new covenant. Thank you. Okay? He didn't, he didn't uh, uh, confirm a covenant for many for one week. And then what did they do? They say, well, that was Christ dying. He confirmed the covenant. And then Peter is referred to in the second half of this because it was three and a half years of Peter's ministry. But it, that's never recorded in the New Testament. They have to just insert all of that theology in there and say, the, when the Bible is precise, it is always very precise on dates, always. Praetorists have no precision at all in their dates, but they, it says, then he, either the Christ or the Antichrist, will confirm a covenant with many for one week, but in the middle of the week, he shall bring an end to sacrifice and offering. So they'll say that Christ's ministry began here. We'll just say um, uh, it wasn't AD 33 that he was crucified. He was crucified in AD 32. But I'm just going to use AD 30 as the beginning of his ministry. And then they say he ministered for three and a half years. And then in the middle of the week, meaning after three and a half years, he was crucified. And that in the middle of the week, he shall bring an end to sacrifice and offering. Christ ended sacrifices and offerings. He is the final and fully sufficient offering. And so it ended it, okay? That's what they will say. And then Peter took up the second, the three and a half years for his ministry, which is not recorded in the Bible. It's not recorded about Christ in a specific, nobody knows if this ministry was three and a half years or not. You can't, you have to go through and you have to say, well, that's this Passover and this Passover, and it, it, it doesn't work. When the Bible is precise, it's very precise. It is not speaking of Jesus. Go back and watch that video. I, I do a better job in it there. But in the middle of the week, he shall bring an end to sacrifice and offering. This is speaking of the seven years that are left for Israel of the end times. He's already promised it to, to um, uh, Daniel, to his people, and his city. It's speaking of Jerusalem, and now Jerusalem is back in the hands of the Jews. It's speaking of the end times. He shall bring an end to sacrifice and offering. That is the next temple to be built. That is coming soon to a temple near you. 
All of the implements are there. The temple hasn't been built yet. We have no idea how it's going to happen, but it is going to happen. It's recorded in Revelation chapter 11 that John is told to go and measure something. What is he told to measure? The courts for the temple, right? Well, you can't measure a spiritual temple, which is a church. Right? He says, go and measure. So what's he going to do? Go out there and measure the whole world and say, well, there's church here and there's church here. No, he's actually told to go and measure a... Let me read it to you really quickly. and We'll get back to Daniel 9, then we'll get back into Romans uh, 10. It says in Revelation 11... Hang on a second here. It, it, it is not speaking of something that was fulfilled in the past. Trust me on this. Then I was given a reed like a measuring rod, and the angel stood saying, Rise and measure the temple of God. Well, they say we are the temple of God, which at this time we are, okay? But you can't go and measure a bunch of people all over the world. And the altar and those who worship there. But leave out the court, which is outside the temple, and do not measure it, for it has been given to the Gentiles. Oh, well, we're Gentiles. No, we've replaced Israel. So you see how convoluted it is when you start getting into replacement theology. The entire thing just breaks down. And they will tread the holy city underfoot for 42 months. Okay? 42 months is three and a half years. Right? Well, how can that be three and a half years that Peter was preaching to the people of Israel? Because the you see the entire thing doesn't fit. Now, this is something coming in the future. So verse 27, he shall bring an end to the sacrifice and offering. That is the Antichrist going in. What it says in 2 Thessalonians, he's going to proclaim himself God. He's going to put himself in the temple of God, proclaiming he is God, right? And it, that is when the sacrifices and offering will end to the Lord. Because he is now saying, I'm God, and this is ending. You're not doing this to them anymore, okay? And on the wing of abomination shall be one who makes desolate, even until the consummation which is determined is poured out on the desolate. It is speaking of a future time, which Paul is referring to right now in Romans chapter 10. He is speaking about his people Israel. His heart's desire for them is to be saved. Chapter 11 is going to show that this is going to happen. Daniel 9 is pointing to the time frame in which it happens. The he in verse 27 of Romans chapter 9 is the Antichrist. If you say it's Christ, all of your theology is wacky. It is completely wacky, and there is no substantiation for it. Now, I, I will say this so that you all understand in case somebody asks you about this. Dispensationalists, I'm sorry, replacement theologians, these people that say they're praetorists and they believe that prophecy is fulfilled and there's no future fulfillment in the Jewish people, will say that the Bible never speaks of a 2,000-year gap between Christ's first coming and his second coming, okay, meaning the church age. They say it never speaks of that in Daniel 9 or anywhere else, okay? And it says there's no gap. It says he shall be crucified, he'll be cut off, and then I read you the rest of it, okay? Guess what? If you are a praetorist, you have exactly the same problem. Because it doesn't matter if Christ crucified and then A.D. 70 is when the temple gets destroyed. Is that seven years from Christ's death until A.D. 70? No. It's A.D. 30 until A.D. 70 is 40 years. Right? Everybody got that? So they have a, they have a gap. They have a gap just like we have a gap. A day to the Lord is like a thousand years and a thousand years is like a day. It doesn't matter if it is one day or if it is 2,000 years, it makes no difference. Every single scenario that any person has ever laid out for these verses in Daniel always have a gap. A gap does not matter. And the book of Hosea says that he will, uh, let me find this, I think it's Hosea chapter 6 and then we'll go on because it all points to the same thing. Hosea chapter 6, 
I think it's six. If it's not, then I'll just quote it to you, and uh, we'll get it later. Have a wonderful evening. Uh, Hosea chapter six. Um, yes, here it is. Come and let us return to the Lord. This is speaking of the end times when the Jews are going to be returning to the Lord. Come and let us return to the Lord, for he has torn, but he will heal us. He has stricken, but he will bind us up. It says there, after two days, he will revive us. On the third day, he will raise us up, that we may live in his sight. That is using that prophecy of Moses from Psalm 90, verse 4, and 2 Peter 3, 8. It says the same thing. A day to the Lord is like a thousand years, and a thousand years is like a day. And he's using that, that time frame. After two days, after 2,000 years, he will revive us. On the third day, meaning at the beginning of the third millennium, on the third day, he will raise us up. He will exalt us that we may live in his sight. It is speaking about the time when Israel will be the head of the nations again. If you look at that in any other light, it doesn't make any sense. After two days, nothing happened after two days in the Old Testament. It happened not at all. We're still waiting for it to happen. Okay, one more verse I could take you to would be the end of Amos, the very last verse. I will take you there. And then we'll get into Romans 9. I've said that six times now, but I, I, I so want to make sure that you have at least a... 2,000 years. What's that? After two days. After two days is 2,000 years. And on the third day, meaning the beginning of that, he will raise us up. The very last, I'm going to read you the second, the last two verses of Amos. But listen to what it says. And then I will tell you what they said, because I don't have their commentaries here. I'm not going to pull it up. But... This is what it says in, in uh, Amos chapter 8, verse 14 and 15. I will bring back the captives of my people Israel. Now that happened in the Babylonian captivity. That is no problem at all. They could say that speaking of the Babylonian captivity. I will bring back the captives of my people Israel. They shall build the waste, play, uh, waste cities and inhabit them. That could have happened after Babylon too. They shall plant vineyards and drink wine from them. They shall also make gardens and eat fruit from them. Oh, that, see, that's speaking of the first exile. We don't need to worry about second exile. Verse 15, I will plant them in their land and no longer shall they be pulled up from the land I have given them, says the Lord your God. Has that ever happened in human history? Yes. After... No, it has never happened. I will plant them in their land oh, and they will never be pulled up no, again. No, no. They were pulled up. After, they were pulled up after, after Babylon. Right. They it says here that I will plant them and they shall no longer be pulled up. John Gill, who goes way, way back, read that verse and he commented out and he said, this is obviously speaking of Israel. How God is going to do this, it is a complete mystery. But the word of God stands. And then a hundred years later, Adam Clark comes along and he gives his own commentary. And he says basically the same thing. This prophecy has never been fulfilled, ever. And how the Lord is going to do it, I'm, I'm paraphrasing because I don't remember exactly what they said, but go read their commentaries on those verses. And these people were not dispensationalists. This was before the dispensationalist movement started with John Darby and Schofield. This was before them. But they understood that this prophecy had never been fulfilled and that the group of people somehow would be regathered in the nation of Israel and they would be planted and never again brought up, ever again brought up from that soil. And it has not happened ever. And so we have many proofs in the Old Testament. Hosea chapter 6, we've got Amos chapter 8, and all of these other things. Daniel, if you take it properly and just read it in the sense that it makes, all of these things point to something coming in the future. This is the reference point that Paul has in his mind. Any other reference point is going to lead you to a wrong understanding of Romans 9 through 11. So having said that, we'll go on now. 
There's this, um, he's praying for a great uh, national uh, salvation or a revival, individual salvation that would turn into a national salvation, okay? And then I said this, but I'm gonna read it again. Someday this will occur as is promised in the Old Testament and as we will see in chapter 11. Well, I took you through some of the verses of the Old Testament to substantiate that. But before this occurs, the tribulation period will come. Israel will be refined as a people. That's Zechariah. It says that two-thirds of them are going to perish in this time. When they are so broken that there's no hope left, Christ Jesus is going to return and rescue them. Okay? And as Paul says, all Israel will be saved. Okay? Life application. Salvation is an individual occurrence. Individual. For Jew and Gentile, but it is also a national thing for Israel. But it's an individual occurrence. Each person must come to the Lord and call on him personally. But individual occurrences can translate into national revivals. It has happened in both biblical times and in great movements since then. It is the wise and understanding soul who will pray for his leaders and his nation when they are living contrary to the truth of the gospel. Even today, our leaders are promoting filth and wickedness, but it is right that we should pray for hearts to turn to the Lord, okay? We don't know. I, I, I am certain, this is Charlie Garrett, I'm certain we are in the end times, that something is going to happen at some point, probably pretty soon. Syria is a mess. Everything that could line up, except for Libya right now, which really is not a part of this, this game. I mean, they're being worked on by the Russians, but we don't have, well, we're going to join them and come against Israel. We don't have that yet. And we also don't have uh, the Sudan, Kush. They're also the Iranians are there, the Russians are there. They're, they're working on these places. And it could be that tomorrow, if they declared war on Israel, those two nations would say, we're joining you. Okay, But at this point, we don't have anything to substantiate it like we do with Turkey and like we do with Iran. But it is coming. Okay, But all of this could fall apart. All of these coalitions could go back to the way they were 30 years ago. And we could be another 400 years waiting for the Lord to come. I don't think that's likely. I'm not one to even consider that in my own head. One, because I want the Lord to come and get us out of here. But two, it just looks like the world is ready. You know, AI technology and all the things that are they're available now that can bring in the end times, that can bring in the mark of the beast, that can bring in a one world religion, one world government, and one world military power. All of those things are in the works right now. So why would the Lord delay that? I don't know, but it could happen. My point is, until we know we should be praying for our nation, for our leaders, and voting wisely. Okay, those are the things we should be doing. Verse 10 to. For I can testify about them that they are zealous for God, but their zeal is not based on knowledge. Okay, and one of the commentaries I either posted or typed, just, uh, it was either posted, maybe I typed, I don't know, yeah, I do them, like I say, they're 10 days apart, and I'm reading three on any given day of the Timothy commentaries. But one of them, I said, basically the same thing. Paul is writing to Timothy, and he made a comment about himself. And I said, it's true what he says, but he wasn't really geared towards the Lord at the time. So how could that be? It's because of what it just says right here. It says, um, uh, I'll read it in this one, a little different, for I bear witness, I, I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. Well, Paul always did what he believed was right in the eyes of the Lord. That's why he persecuted Christians. It's because he believed that it was the right thing to do. He believed that he was honoring the Lord. As I've said, though, misdirected faith is wasted. Thank you, wasted faith. 
Misdirected faith is wasted faith. Just because Paul believed that he was doing right does not mean that he was doing right. But in his heart and in his conscience, even after coming to Christ, he said, I was doing what I felt was right, okay? And I use this example a lot so that people understand the passion of people. When somebody goes into a shopping center and they open up their vest and they push the thing and they blow up 87 people, it's because they believe they're doing the right thing, but they're misdirected in what they're doing. Misdirected faith is wasted faith. He wasted himself and he wasted anybody that hadn't heard the message of Jesus in the process, okay? He condemned them, but he believed what he was doing. That is what he's speaking about right here. They have knowledge, they have zeal, but not according to knowledge. Paul begins verse two, these are my comments, with for, as he does, uh, as he so often does. In Greek, the word for, or gar, will normally follow the thought such as I bear witness for them. But the conjunction comes first in our translations. For then joins verses one and two together. What he will explain comes from his direct knowledge of the situation. I bear them witness. What this means is that he can fully testify to the statement he will make. He is qualified, qualified to make this case. Okay, now once again, he's saying, I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. Is he speaking about the church there? No, you can't insert the church and say we're Israel when he's defined who Israel is in chapter one and he continues to define them in, uh, I'm sorry, verse one and continues to define them in verse two. He's talking about a people that are doing something not according to knowledge. He's not speaking to the people of the church who have the knowledge of Christ. Okay, once again, he's making a distinction between the two. Um, so where was I? The conjunction, okay, what this means is he can fully testify to the statement, he's qualified to make the case. Being a Jew himself, Paul had a right to speak on behalf of his people. But a commoner, one lacking knowledge of the law, wouldn't be able to speak on behalf of a leader who had proper training in the written word. However, Paul could. In Philippians 3, he lists his credentials, okay? A commoner could not say, I'm speaking on behalf of the people of Israel. They are have a zeal, but not according to knowledge. But Paul could. Why? He explains why in the book of Philippians, in chapter three, here's what he says. He says, um, what verse was, I think it was verse four that I put down. Yeah, three, four. He says, um, uh, though I might also have confidence in the flesh, if anyone th thinks he may have confidence in the flesh, I more so. He's putting himself up against the Jews, the people that are supposedly telling the Gentiles what to do and you need to do this and that. He says, listen, I can boast about the flesh, all right? He says, I more so, circumcised the eighth day. That means that he, according to the law, which was given to Abraham, even before the giving of the, the law to Moses, he was circumcised on the eighth day. He was in obedience to the precept given to his father Abraham, okay, of the stock of Israel. That means he wasn't just of Abraham because, uh, what's his name, uh, uh, Ishmael, his sons that were born in the house would have been, actually Ishmael didn't have sons born in the house, but anybody will go with um, his sons of Keturah, right? Remember after Sarah died and uh, she had sons, okay? And they're all listed there in uh, the life of Abraham. Every one of those sons would have been circumcised, but they were not of Israel. They were not of the chosen line. You had Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, who is Israel. So he's saying, not only was I circumcised according to the law, which was given to Abraham, which includes all of these people that come from Abraham, but I'm also of the line of Israel, meaning that the promised line, Abraham, Isaac, 
Jacob, who is Israel, okay, of the tribe of Benjamin. He makes that a distinction. Now, you have to ask, why would he brag about that, right? There are lots of reasons why Benjamin was an important tribe, okay? Anybody think Saul. of any of them? Saul. King Saul was their first king, okay? So their first king, king, king from Benjamin. Go back before Saul, though. What happened in the book of Judges? They were a tribe that were reduced down to 600 people, and they had to actually, uh, because they disobeyed the Lord, they stuck up for the people that disobeyed the Lord, and all of the tribes of Israel came against Benjamin and wiped them out down to 600 people. 400 got wives in a way that was kind of conniving by the tribe so that they wouldn't lose the tribe of Israel. 200 didn't have wives, so they figured out another way to get them wives. And so they all had enough wives and they were able to repopulate, but they stayed a small tribe and yet their first king came from them. And then of course, the Benjamites are noted as having helped David during his time of conquest, okay? And then one of the really important things, why would he be able to brag about Benjamin? Guess whose tribe saved the people of Israel? saved the people of Israel. Let me take you there. He has a reason to brag and he's doing it to show them that I am a person that is qualified to make these uh, these decisions. His tribe saved the people of Israel. Um, I think I want to go to, uh, hang on one sec here. It says here, um, where is this? After these things, Okay, that's right. Now, I want to get the right, right one here. Hang on. Okay, this is Esther chapter 2, verse 5. In Shushan the citadel was a certain Jew whose name was Mordecai, the son of Jair, the son of Shimei, the son of Kish, a Benjamite. If it wasn't for them, there would be no Israel, right? But he was of Benjamin, which means that his, his uh, niece, who was raised under him, was also from Benjamin. Esther, Hadassah, who became Queen Esther. And if it wasn't for that, there would be no Jewish people. But the Lord knew this. And so you have all of these, these things tied into the tribe of Benjamin. This is a very important tribe. He's saying, I'm not just of Abraham. I'm not just of Israel. I'm of Benjamin. He had something really to brag about if he was bragging in the flesh. And then he goes on from there and he says, a Hebrew of the Hebrews. Hebrew is one who is crossed over, is what the name comes from, the, the name Eber, who is one of the ancestors of Abraham. Okay, it means to cross over. And that was the first time it is used is in Genesis 13, I think, when it says Abraham the Hebrew. He had crossed over. He was now in the land of promise. He's uh, this chosen select group of people. And then they've received the sign and the covenants, and they're called Hebrews a certain number of times in the Old Testament. Not many, surprisingly. And uh, then after that, um, he says, I'm a Hebrew of Hebrews. I am way above the rest of the people in my group. And he explains that again, concerning the law of Pharisee. So he's a Hebrew of Hebrews because concerning the law, he is in the top elite class of all of the people in Israel. So the reason why I'm going through, through all of this distinction about Paul is to support what he is saying in Romans 10 verse two. He is qualified to make the statement that he's making, whereas a commoner in Israel couldn't. They just some schlub out in the, the fields, you know, he's an agricultural guy and he's not well trained and he's, you know, probably from the tribe of Naphtali that everybody's forgotten about. Okay, he goes on, he's a Pharisee concerning zeal, persecuting the church. He was one of them. He can write this in Romans 10 verse 2 because he was one of them. I persecuted the church. That is the qualification that I bear. As a Jew, I was the one that went out and did the dirty work. And he did. It's all recorded there in Acts. All right. 
So concerning, uh, concerning righteousness, which is in the law, here it is. This is what he's saying about them in Romans 10 too. <coughs> blameless. He's blameless under the law. He did everything that the law required as a Pharisee would, but he did it with the wrong heart attitude, and he did it against Christ instead of understanding who Christ is. But he was blameless under the law. And that's what he's speaking about here in Romans 10, verse uh, 2. Read it again here. It says, go ahead and read it because I'm not there. I can testify about them that they are zealous for God. But their zeal is not based on knowledge. Not based on knowledge. Exactly what he described of himself. I persecuted the church. Their zeal isn't based on knowledge. He was zealous for the law, just as they are. This is what he is referring to. Okay? So we have, um, uh, where was that? Being, uh, he lists his credentials. Elsewhere in the book of Acts and in his writings, more of Paul's proven right to speak on such matters is given. Because of his ability to bear this witness... He now ties his desires for Israel in with his knowledge of Israel. He can bear witness to these things because he has the knowledge of it and he has experienced it as well. Experiential knowledge leads to full knowledge of the situation. By the way, we just read the book of Esther, right? It's Purim in Israel, right? They're celebrating Purim while we're sitting here in, in uh, I saw a bunch of Jewish people over there today posting on Facebook wall, happy Purim and all that to you. Uh, Purim means, does anybody know what that word means? The poor means a lot. Purim means lots. They cast lots to determine the fate of Israel. Okay? That's where the word comes from. That's where the feast comes from, is Purim or lots. They cast the lots. Okay, so um, uh, they have a zeal for God. This is what Paul says, for they have a zeal for God. Zeal for something can be a good thing or it can be a bad thing. Many adherents, oh, I brought this up and now I'm saying it again, so you get to hear it. I get ahead of myself in my commentaries and then I find out that I thought the same thing four years ago when I typed this. Many adherents to Islam have a zeal for their belief in God, going so far as to blow themselves up and others in crowded bus stations. I think I said them all my minute ago. Here I said, okay, so I did bus station four years ago. I did them all today. They're moving up in the world, whatever. Okay, but this zeal is misdirected. The same is true with the Hindu zeal to make a trek to bathe in the Ganges River, okay? I'm going to go and wash and God will be happy with me. They're zealous to do it, but they're doing the wrong thing, right? Whatever God, there's 300, God, 300 million gods in uh, Hinduism, whichever God they're worshiping, he's gonna take care of me. Now, it's supposed to be a sacred thing to do and they do do it. They bathe in the Ganges, but they also throw their dead bodies into the Ganges. And so that's, uh, they, this is how they honor their dead. And so if you go down to the, the flood water, you know, the, where the waters go out and the, the shore, there are just skeletons everywhere. I mean, partially de decomposed bodies and everything. And that's the same river they're bathing in. So it's not the world's greatest thing to be doing, but that's, they do that to this day. Um, just type it in. Go to your scroll bar and say um, uh, burial in the Ganges, and you'll see all kinds of stuff. It's gross. Anyway, um, so I don't know why God would be happy with you bathing in a river full of dead people, but... Okay, and the Jew likewise had a zeal for God, but Paul explains not according to knowledge, okay? Paul had all of the knowledge of the law. A Pharisee had to have that knowledge. I've heard somebody say, I don't know if this is true. I'm just gonna tell you. I heard this one time is that the Pharisees had to know all five books of Moses. They had to memorize them. And so if they were asked what is um, Deuteronomy saying here, he would be able to quote it back, all right? I don't know if that is true, that would be, a huge feat to be able to memorize the five books of Moses. But anyway, um, whether that's true or not, don't make a brain squiggle. It's just something I heard. But um, 
he had all of the knowledge. He knew what the law said, and he also knew what the prophets said because he's always citing the prophets, isn't he? Mm -hmm. As it is written, he goes to Isaiah, or as it is written, and he goes to the books of the writings, okay? Anyway, so they've got this knowledge, and he's got this knowledge, but even their law, Oh, wait a minute. Um, one more thing. The Jew looked at the law as an end in and of itself. And I've said this in many sermons. Yeah, you obviously remember that. It, they looked at the law as an end in and of itself, and they still do to this day. And thus set to establish righteousness based on adherence to the law. And I remember when we did the sermon on Aaron's, uh, what do you call it? ordination. Remember his ordination and then his sons died? And I made the statement that if Moses sat down and thought through the words that he spoke to Aaron and the situation there, he would have just broken down in tears and said, it's not even worth going on. Because he understood on a minimal level, but afterward, when we see the intent of the law and how it points to Christ, absolutely no end in and of itself. It is it, it is incapable of saving anybody. Go back and watch that sermon on the deaths of uh, Nadav and Avihu, and you'll understand what I'm talking about. Anyway, they looked at the laws and end in and of itself. But even their law, as has been shown in many previous commentaries, even from the book of Romans, reveals that righteousness is not of the law, but of... Begins with F, ends with eighth. Faith, there you go, okay. It begins, it is of faith, it is not of law. Remember we read Habakkuk a couple weeks ago, the just shall live by the law? Oh no, that's right, it says but the just shall live by his faith. And then Paul cites that, he cites that a couple times. All right, so the righteousness is not of the law, it is of faith. Even under the Old Testament, you bring in the Day of Atonement. The Day of Atonement was a day of faith. Even though it's a part of the law, it was a day of faith. The just shall live by his faith. If they didn't do the Day of Atonement, it says that that person was to be cut off from his people, right? But nobody knew that he was doing it. He's out in his fields, right? He's just doing whatever. Nobody knows what he's doing. So it is between the Lord and him, which means that it is of faith. The next okay. two verses cover that. The what? The next yes, two. the next two do, and we're not going to get them all done. No, um, uh, I, I don't know if I said this at the beginning of the class or not, but I'm going to shut us down about 10 minutes early. Say that. Okay, and the reason why is because my wife isn't here. She had an accident, and so I am going to uh, go home and be with her a little bit early because I haven't seen her on her birthday all day long. So, yeah, don't worry. She's okay, but her car got all mutilated. Anyway, um, and we'll get it fixed up here. Uh, but anyway, um, uh, previous commentary reveals that it's not of the law, but the faith. And in the end, that faith must be in the provision of the Lord. He's speaking about the zeal, but not according to knowledge. He said the same thing about himself in Philippians chapter 3, right? It has to be the proper knowledge. It has to be faith in the provision of the Lord. Jeremiah 23 gives an explicit rendering of where our righteousness lies. Here's what it says in Jeremiah 23. You think you go to Jeremiah and there, he's always saying, you know, if it was, uh, uh, if, I see Jews cite this a lot on Jewish sites where they're trying to argue with Christians about how they're okay with God because of the Old Testament. And they'll say, as long as the uh, uh, heavens, uh, the sun is in the heavens and the moon shines, thus, uh, if that fails to happen, then my love for uh, Israel will die away. What, you know the verse. Anyway, I'm misquoting it, but they take these verses, select verses, and they pull them out. Context always matters, but they pull them out, and they say, see, God loves us forever, okay, regarding, disregarding everything that it says in Leviticus and that it says in Ezekiel about how I'm going to cut you off and all this. They just say, we're okay, and we don't know it. But here's what it says in uh, Jeremiah 23. It says, behold, the days are coming, says the Lord. 
that I will raise to David a branch of righteousness. A king shall reign and prosper and execute judgment and righteousness in the earth. This is after the time of David, so it can't be speaking of him. In his days, Judah will be saved. Judah had never been saved after this time. So it must be speaking of the messianic time, right? And Israel will dwell in safety. Now this is his name by which he will be called. Yehovah Sikenu, the Lord, our righteousness, right? That's where righteousness comes from. It comes not from observance of the law. It comes from the Lord himself, okay? He gives, that's an explicit rendering of where our righteousness lies. Well, if that's the case, and he isn't here now because the messianic kingdom hasn't been enacted, then that means that we must live by faith. Absolutely. Okay. However, failing to pick up on these Old Testament concepts, which there are a million of them, that's just one, Israel looked to adherence of the law as the final goal. This is how we're going to be pleasing to God. But unfortunately, this type of zeal, as Paul says, was not according to knowledge. It was Paul who was persecuting the church. He was doing what the law said to do, but it wasn't according to knowledge. He's saying, you're blaspheming, you're blaspheming the name of the Lord. This guy died and you're saying that he's the Lord incarnate. It wasn't according to knowledge, right? Okay, in the coming verses, Paul will explain what he means by knowledge. But it should be noted that because of the path that they took, it actually set up a division between them and those who needed knowledge. It became such a point of difference that Jesus explained what the outcome would be in John chapter 16. Now let me read you that here. John chapter 16, he says, They will put you out of the synagogues. Yes, the time is coming that whoever kills you will think he offers God service. And this is what Paul is doing. And this is what they continue to want to do to Paul all the way through the rest of his ministry. Verse 3, And these things they will do to you, because they have not known the Father nor me. They know the law, but they don't have knowledge of the Father. This is exactly what Paul is writing about in Romans chapter 10. He's not speaking about the church at all at this point. And as we've seen all the way through Romans, he'll speak to the church and they stops and he speaks to the Jew. And then he makes the Jew an example to the church and he goes and he's always working his way methodically to get to the very end of the book. So he can put down the pen and have his dinner but he's doing it, he probably had a late dinner that night because it is so meticulous and it is so methodical what he's doing here, okay? Jesus said it, Paul is reiterating it. Being blinded to their need for Jesus Christ, Israel actually thought that their service to God was to kill those who rightly called on him. See, this is what Paul did, this is what he's saying they're still doing. This is documented in the book of Acts time and time and time and time again. There it relates such accounts, including the actions of a man named Saul, who would later become known as Paul. Right, okay? So he went from Saul, he went to Paul. Does anybody know what Paul means? You were in the book of Acts with us for three years. You better remember. Little. Little, small, exactly right. I'm so glad you got that. Gee whiz. Okay, so he looked at himself as a little guy probably. That's probably why I chose that. Anyway, it makes a great pattern of what goes on with the destruction of Sodom. I think it's in uh, Genesis chapter 19. There's a city, Zoar. Isn't it the little city? Pointing to Paul. I just established that back in that sermon. It's all, all everything is pointing to what Christ is going to do and what he is going, you know, when uh, uh, the twins, what are their names? Uh, Jacob and Esau came out, right? And the word is tom, twin, right? But where is a pattern in the New Testament of that? 
the brothers called Didymus or the twins, right? And you look at those words and how they're used and they actually make a parallel of when Jesus speaks to the brothers Thomas, okay? Tom, Thomas comes from Tom, he's a twin, okay? Go back and watch that sermon. You'll see the pattern between the two. Wonderful what does stuff. Saul mean? Saul, it, it is very hard to pin down. It's a very hard word to pin down, but I will tell you that it is the exact same letters as Sheol, the place of the dead. But there are various opinions on Saul um, and what it means. I don't remember right offhand because it, people argue over it. There's some names that are just hard to pin down. But the interesting thing is that it, it is the same characters as Sheol. And so there's something there that I haven't completely figured out. But uh, uh, I will get you an answer on Saul as to what people debate on it. I was yes. just curious. Oh, okay. You know, that's 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 in Romans 1, when Paul's introduced, I read a guy who said that, the parents named him Saul right. because they wanted him to be a big man. Uh, Saul was. Right. You know, even though he was little. That, that, that could be. Yeah. Because he was, they say that his, but we went through that in the uh, book. No, he wasn't tall. He was a, a, a very odd shaped person, according to some descriptions, which they believe are correct about him. He was a very bizarre looking kind of odd, yeah, kind of a, an odd, odd shaped guy. And it, it, we established in Acts, he had very bad eyes. Okay. We can know that several ways in the epistles as well, but he had to be conducted wherever he went. And um, what did he say to the, uh, uh, yeah, the Corinthians or no, the Galatians, oh, you Galatians. He said, you know, if you could have pulled out your eyes and given them to me, he used that for a reason. And then he said, see what large letters I write with. Well, a person that's blind would do that. And he's standing in the same room with the high priest, and he says, you whitewashed wall. And they say, you cursed the high priest. He said, I didn't know it was the high priest. I mean, all of these little clues show that his eyes were very bad. And plus, he was small, which maybe that's true. Maybe they wanted a big Paul, and they got a little, or a big Saul, and they got a little Paul, whatever. But uh, the name Saul is hard to pin down. Anyway, he went with this name, Paul, all the way through the New Testament after there's a point where Saul is used, and then it goes to Paul, and it's never Saul again. Okay, anyway, um, uh, that was a nice diversion. Thank you. Um, or you, or maybe both of you. Anyway, whoever did that, thank you. Um, so um, uh, the, the book of Acts relates it. It relates the accounts, including the actions of Saul. Life application. And we're going to finish with this one because verse 3, hang on. It's going to be way too long. It's, there's no way. So we'll just finish with this because uh, I want to go see my wife. The Bible says that those who please God do so by placing their faith in the finished work of Christ. Nothing else can satisfy the righteous requirements of the law. Either Jesus is all sufficient or no person can be saved. Let your zeal for God be found in Christ Jesus. Okay, that's, that's the end of that story. I know that people will argue it. I will say this because we I said at 10 minutes and we got four more minutes before we're at 10 minutes. So uh, I, I told uh, Burke, he talked about wonderful approach. He's got this neighbor that knows he's a Christian. He's always trying to convert him and the guy won't listen. And uh, the guy always says when he sees Burke, hey, what's new? And so he walked over there today. No, Monday. Monday, he walked over there with his Bible in his hand and he says, what is it that you always say to me when you meet me and the guy says you know you, you, you just say things you don't know what it is and finally he had to tell him he said you say what's new and he says I want to tell you what's new and he, the guy says oh here's the Bible again he, so he's doing his job right he opens up to Habakkuk and he says your mercies are lamentations thank you 
Lamentations. Yeah. Your mercies are yeah. new every morning. He said, that's what's new. Okay, that's a good way of approaching somebody that you just talk to and he won't listen. I, yesterday, talked to somebody, the house that I used to take care of up until last June when Mr. Lee sold the property. I don't take care of it anymore. But um, uh, he sold it and the people that bought it, I met them last year and I haven't seen them since. But uh, their names are Jim and Megan. And I hadn't talked to him about anything other than working around the house at the time because it was just, you know, wasn't the time. But I was taking care of my aunt's house and uncle's house yesterday, and I saw her for the first time since last year. And I said, you're Megan, aren't you? Yes. And so we started talking, and um, uh, I uh, uh, asked her the question about Christ. And she says, "I first I asked her, what do you believe? Do you believe anything? Do you believe there was a God? Oh, yeah. And my husband and I are Catholic and we were baptized and we haven't really done anything with it and, uh, and she says our kids are 18 and when they're old enough we'll talk to them about what they want to believe in in religion and I'm like oh you know I could have quoted some verses there but I didn't but um, anyway uh, she got the gospel and we'll see where it goes with that but the point is that you want to make the best of every opportunity Okay, because people need Jesus. That was my last point there, is that people need Jesus, and it's up to you to make sure that you open your mouth and speak. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so. Right. So, um, uh, well, let's close in prayer and pray for Megan and Jim. And you know what I brought in? We've got lots of ex-Catholics in this church. And I said, you know what? Most of the people in the church came out of Catholicism, or I came out of Catholicism light, which was the Episcopal Church. We do exactly the same thing. We just don't have popes and we don't have saints. But we stand up at the same time. We say the same creeds, the whole shebang. It's just the same thing. And it, it, it serves no purpose without Christ, right? We didn't know Christ for how many years? And we were in the church since I was a kid, right? Until you meet Christ, none of it makes any sense. So let's go to Lord in prayer. Lord, thank you for this wonderful book of Romans. Thank you that we can get into it and uh, uh, just search it out. And I would pray that my commentary about the Jews is correct, that they actually have not been replaced by the church. Um, I would pray that people would search that out and check those verses themselves. And Lord, we thank you for how you have woven this word together that is so perfect and so pure that we can know without any doubt at all that we have a sure word and that we can be confident, confident in your word and in our faith in Christ Jesus. And Lord, <clears throat> thank you for my beautiful wife who is here, and thank you that she's safe even after her accident. And we would uh, certainly pray that she has a good rest of her birthday today. And then finally, we lift up Jim and Megan. We would pray that you would be with them, and uh, your spirit would call them and continue to nag at them until they submit to you and call on Christ. And if an opportunity comes up where we can speak again, I would pray that you would make that door available. And for anybody else, a, a Burke's neighbor, we would certainly pray for him as well, that he can know that your mercies are new every morning, and he can know it because of Christ. Lord, thank you for the chance to talk to these people, and please just open their hearts and minds, and uh, then we'll pray that they make the right decision and call on Christ. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. Amen. Okay, let me back this up here. <laughs> Without Jesus, it's all just works. It's all just works. Yeah. That was her first answer. Why should God accept you? I. First, I said, no I in the equation. Okay. Goodbye, everybody. Have a wonderful week, and we love you. Take care.
You doing all right, Blake? Hello, Chip. Hello. Praise the Lord. What? Oh, yeah. They called the police, and, and she, it was her fault. It was, yeah. So, very, very kind. Oh, I was... Yeah, I, it, she thought I was going to be upset. I wasn't at all. I was just happy she was okay. Yeah. No, she was all worried he's going to be upset about the car. What do I care? As long as she's okay, the car can be replaced. Yeah. Oh. 